This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the major issues on the agenda for the summit between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, taking place in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, on April 6th and 7th. And today I'm here with two of the Council's experts and Deep Dish regulars, Phil Levy, our senior fellow for the global economy. Welcome, Phil. Hi, good to be here. And joining us by phone is the Council's Carl Friedhoff, uh, a fellow on foreign policy and an expert on the Asian region. Welcome, Carl. Good to have you here. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on. So the two major issues expected to be discussed and really be at the centerpiece of this summit are North Korea, what to do about North Korea, and also economic relations between China and the U.S. And I really want to focus on those two issues during this conversation. Carl, let me start off with with North Korea. Um, Here, as many know, the main issue is North Korea's nuclear program. Uh, North Korea obviously has nuclear weapons and has been actively testing um, and advancing not only their nuclear capabilities, but also their missile technology. They're currently able to reach uh, their neighbors, uh, countries like Japan and South Korea. And uh, North Korea is actively trying to develop the capability of attacking the United States and and being able to send a missile that could make it all the way to the U.S., potentially with a nuclear weapon. Um, In terms of policy in this area, you know, the U.S. for many years has been trying to rein in the North Korea nuclear program and has been pressing China to do more to use its leverage to change North Korean behavior. Um, Of course, President Trump has been very critical of China for not doing enough. And as a candidate declared, you know, um, that China, if it wanted to, could change North Korea's behavior. You know, they said Beijing could fix it easily. Um, Taking all this into account, what does President Trump want China to do vis-a-vis North Korea? And what's he likely to ask for during this summit? Well, thank you. And, you know, of course, the overall goal is going to remain the denuclearization of North Korea. You know, so anything that that President Trump is going to ask for is going to be with that aim in mind. I think the the things that he's going to ask for, number one, is going to be sanctions enforcement. Um, These sanctions have been uh, kind of of put in place by the United Nations Security Council, and China has either voted to approve them or abstained from those votes. So China is, you know, therefore technically obliged to enforce these sanctions. Um, These are things like coal exports, or in the case of China, coal imports from North Korea. Uh, And, you know, this is something that China has said that it stopped doing, but there have been several studies done on this, and whether or not China is actually enforcing this ban on coal imports is really up for question. So I think that's one area where he's going to, to ask China to perhaps start enforcing a little more carefully. The other, the other side is going to be on the finance side. The fact that there are Chinese banks that continue to interact with North Korean uh, interlocutors, whether that's transferring money, whether it's kind of acting as a clearinghouse for, for money getting into other places, these things are, are ongoing. And so these are what is referred to as secondary sanctions, where rather than placing sanctions on North Korea or North Korean people or entities, the, the secondary sanctions will be placed on anyone that interacts with these these kind of uh, North Korean places or entities that are listed in the sanctions. That'll be the, the one of the other asks. And I think the third thing that he's going to ask for on, on sanctions is perhaps the uh, a question about China's use of North Korean labor. You know, it's not widely known, but becoming a little more widely known 
that one of North Korea's major exports is actually labor. They send it to Russia, they send their workers to China, and China's been using them kind of, you know, very quietly. And, you know, there are several good studies out there that make a good case for about how much money, which is a significant amount, that is flowing back to North Korea from the exploitation of this labor. So I think that's where he's going to, to focus his efforts on, is, is going to be on sanctions enforcement. And part of this is, is it realistic to ask for this? Well, yeah, of course. It is realistic, and the United States has been asking for, for these kinds of enforcement on sanctions for quite some time. But the real question is, will it work? And on that, I think you know, we're looking at a pretty resounding no. Um, you know, we've, again, the United States has asked this for a long time. China has continued to kind of stall on the enforcement of sanctions overall. You know, it comes and it goes. You know, for example, they export oil or, or things like gas into North Korea. And what will end up happening is that there will be a gap in the exports. If you look at the UN, UN uh, com trade data, suddenly it looks like China is exporting no gas or oil to North Korea. But what actually they do is they reclassify it as aid. So then that is, does not go into the database, and you know China can say that they met the requirements, but actually the, the trade is continuing apace. So is it going to work? Probably not. But the United States, of course, has to ask. And, you know, therein lies the problem is, is it's a real enforcement and, and a will problem on the part of China. And there's nothing much that the United States can do to try to you know, encourage or force China into uh, better enforcing those sanctions. Hey, Carl, the relation, just the broader question of the relations between China and North Korea, should we think of those as friendly? Or is this really a relationship sort of tolerant where the North Koreans, where they annoy each other, but they don't really see alternatives? Yeah, I think it's much more antagonistic than most people would normally think. Um, it's certainly not friendly. Uh, there are kind of barbs back and forth all the time where we hear stories coming out of China that they don't particularly like the North Koreans, but you know, for now they have to deal with them. And the North Koreans have never been particularly friendly with China. You know, this, and this kind of all ties back into this North Korean ideology of Juche. Uh, Juche is all about self-reliance. And so therefore, if you have one larger neighbor that is providing 70% of, of, you know, of your economy, which it seems that China is doing for North Korea, that undercuts this kind of founding ideology of Juche. And so it's always been a point of pride for the North Koreans and, and somewhat, you know, it, it's hurt relations in a lot of ways. And so this ongoing missile program, these ongoing nuclear programs you know, have really frayed, frayed the relationship with China. So there's really not a lot of love between them, but for now they seem to be stuck with each other. And then why wouldn't China then push North Korea even harder? So China's mostly worried about instability in the region, and not only not the region at large, but especially in its northeast uh, area of, of China. So the concern is that by destabilizing North Korea, you know, if they decide to cut trade or they decide to cut energy uh, exports into North Korea, that somehow, some way, this may lead to regime change, could lead to further instability, perhaps even an outbreak of hostilities if North Korea feels backed into a corner. And then there's speculation that what that would mean is that refugees from North Korea would then flood across the, the Yalu River into northeastern China, and that would create a whole other set of issues for China to deal with. And of course, this takes place in, in kind of the context of China already being faced with some economic problems, which, you know, there's a lot of debate about how serious those problems are. But for now, China wants to, to keep everything as calm as possible so it can try to deal with its ongoing internal issues the best it can. President Trump, you know, portrays himself, uh, based on his real estate background, as a, as a deal maker. Is there anything that President Trump could offer China 
in exchange for taking a harder line on on North Korea? I mean, there are certainly things that he could offer, but I guess the better question is, are there things that he will offer? And my answer to that is, is largely no. Um, you know, there was a question about, I believe it was in, in one of the interviews recently, about if there would be a grand bargain with China in relation to North Korea. And essentially, President Trump said, well, you know, I'm not going to say any more about that. You know, every there are options, but I'm not going to talk about it. So if there is a grand bargain, it's certainly not clear what it would be. You know, it's very unlikely that it would be something like Taiwan or the South China Sea. I mean, that's that's uh, pretty much unthinkable. I mean, one of the options would be perhaps to reconsider the, the full deployment of THAAD, this missile defense battery that's recently been placed in, in the south of, in the southern part of South Korea. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think the U.S. military has determined that this is important for the defense of U.S. military assets in South Korea. And, you know, the reason that they deployed it early is because they didn't want it to come up for review or have the chance for the new South Korean administration, which is incoming in May, to have a chance to nix the deployment of that. So if suddenly there were a reversal on that, I would be quite surprised if that was put up on the auctioning block. And, and quite frankly, I don't think that China would take that because the, the trade-off isn't quite equal. Terrific. And how about on the trade side? In a Financial Times interview, um, Trump you know, talked about the possibility of a deal around North Korea, and he said something like, um, you know, I think trade is the incentive. It's all about trade. Uh, Phil, is how attractive is, how important is that for China, and could that be part of a deal on North Korea? I think China cares a lot about the trade relationship. The challenge here is just as we're asking them to do difficult things, most of the things that they would ask of us, we would also consider difficult. So if you look at what are some very long-standing Chinese requests for changes in U.S. trade policy, one of these is relaxing export restrictions on high technology and potentially dual-use technologies. Things, things that, can, that could be used for military. Both commercial and military. That's right. So the U.S. has, sort of, for obvious reasons, been somewhat reluctant to do that. Um, I think there's Chinese concern about restrictions being placed on Chinese investments in the U.S., that we've subjected more and more of these to a careful security review. That's going to be a very hard thing for the Trump administration, for any administration, but particularly for the Trump administration, to give in on. So it's not that there's a lack of desire on their part. It's just that it's going to be hard to fulfill. It is worth noting that we did have something of a trade deal more or less pretty close to worked out under the Obama administration, which was a bilateral investment treaty. It's more about investment, is often the precursor to a trade deal. It didn't get concluded. On the other hand, President Trump has not shown a great inclination to embrace his predecessor's trade initiatives. So that's something the Chinese would probably like if he followed through on this. Again, it would seem rather inconsistent with some of his policy stances so far. Terrific. Let, let's build on this uh, uh, and look at the trade agenda that's likely to emerge in the summit. Uh, president Trump, as a candidate and as and even as president, has been very critical of China and the economic policies that they have that they have pursued. What do you imagine will be on the Trump agenda vis-a-vis trade and the economic relationship? That's a lot harder to answer than you would think, because a lot of the things that um, the Trump administration and some of the key voices in the Trump administration have focused on are rather unique. That, that many. So, for example, you've had uh, Peter Navarro, 
who's now head of the White House Trade Council, um, famous for writing a book and producing a movie, Death by China, claiming that China's um, had the China trade has had disastrous effects. Um, both he and our new Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross have expounded a theory whereby it's trade deficits that are all important, and the president has also said this. That's quite different from what most mainstream economists would think. And one of the challenges with that is there isn't an easy lever to control trade deficits. This is not the sort of thing where you say, oh, I'll adjust my trade policy a little bit, or or even that I'll make some easy macroeconomic adjustments. I'll um, there actually aren't many easy macroeconomic adjustments. They're almost all hard. But you know, even doing your savings rate a little differently, not an easy thing to pull off by any means. But even if you did that, that doesn't necessarily get to your bilateral trade balance between the U.S. and China. So a lot of the concerns that President Trump has been raising are not things that are readily addressed. It is worth noting there are a lot of concerns that ought to be addressed. If you look at, for example, things that the U.S. business community complains about, um, the the treatment of intellectual property um, in China, the preferences given in investment to uh, domestic firms in China, and, and discrimination against foreign firms. So there certainly is an agenda that one could adopt. It's just not necessarily what this president has been talking about. So when it comes to trade deficits, he's been talking about trade deficits a lot and concern about trade deficits in China. Um, what are some of the policy options that the administration has talked about pursuing, and do you think they would be effective in producing the results? You know, the, the crazy thing is that they really have not put forward a tool which is here is how we're going to adjust trade deficits. They've complained about this, certainly in the Chinese context. They've complained about it in the German context. And what we've been short on is, all right, so what do you want to do about it? Absent some really draconian interventions in trade, which were the kind of things that we saw as sort of disastrous measures in 1950s developing economies, where you, you sort of parcel out foreign exchange in, in, you know, in really uh, restrictive ways. Short of that, it's very hard to do something about this. You can, you can stick trade barriers on. You can try to move currencies. You mostly move currencies through macroeconomic policies. So you'll have sort of a tighter monetary policy. Um, you can affect national savings and investment. But these are big moves that then start crossing up other parts of President Trump's agenda, that, um, that for example, one of the speculations about what would happen on the economic front in terms of striking a deal for this meeting is that the Chinese will offer job-creating investments in the U.S. Well, that could be nice. Um, it's not hard to see how you could get positive headlines out of something like that. But if you increase Chinese investment in the United States, other things equal, that usually is offset by a greater trade deficit. Um, the, and, and why? Why would they, on one hand you'd think, well, they wouldn't be importing goods anymore because they'd invest yeah, and they could boost them here. And this is so people often think that you know it's just on the good side. What you need globally is a balance between what's happening with investments and what's happening with goods. And so, if you're getting a flow of money in for investments, then you get a flow of money out for goods. And in exchange markets, these things need to balance off. So this is called sort of balance of payments. Um, and so those two things need to, to offset each other, um, more of an accounting identity than a theory. But, but it's why 
the this whole trade deficit question is nowhere near as straightforward as the current administration tends to portray it. One of the other things that, that's, I think, interesting about this uh, area, and you touched on it a couple of times, which is on savings. And one hears this argument that one of the fundamental problems is that China is saving too much money and that what we want to encourage is for China to decrease its savings level. Two questions. What in the world does the savings rate in China have to do with trade deficits with the U.S.? And what would it even mean? I mean, we think in this country, I mean, you're talking about my daughter can't save so that she can spend money in college, right? What does it really mean for a country like China to reduce its savings rate? So for any country, um, one of the sort of truisms of this balance of payments accounting is that the difference between exports and imports is going to be equal to the difference between savings and investment. Um, so you have a certain number of investment projects and you want financing for them. That financing can come from domestic sources because people saved a lot and they ran it all through banks and then the banks lent to people. Or it can come from international sources. If it's coming from international sources, then you get back to that dynamic I described earlier where if on net you're sort of bringing in money for investment, then on net you're sending money out for, for foreign goods. Um, so. That's why these two are linked. When we talk about savings, you're right, our first inclination is to think, you know, how much do we set aside from our paycheck? There's three components um, to savings that we'll talk about. One of them is that, is personal savings. It's what, what do sort of households do. Then there's the corporate sector with savings, and then there's the public sector. So when you talk about whether the federal government is going to run a bigger deficit or a smaller deficit, and state governments, will they run? bigger or smaller deficits. That all feeds into savings as well. Um, these are difficult behaviors to change that we've talked about how, you know, U.S. Cons it's difficult both in terms of actually making people change and also in terms of deciding what you want. Because in the U.S., for example, if people were to save more, that means they're consuming less, which often means they're, that the economy is slowing down a little bit other things equal. So is that really what one wants to encourage? Um, we talk about this with China as well. So it, it is certainly true that if you look at China as a country, they have been big net national savers. That, that is the flip side of running a big trade or current account surplus. Um, again, not easy behavior to change. There, there's not a ready policy lever that you just pull on it and savings behavior switches. Terrific. Another issue on the economic relationship with China that Trump was hitting very hard in the campaign, but there's been less news about uh, since he's been president, is uh, the accusation of China manipulating its currency. Is that something that is an active issue and that we might hear something about during the summit? Active only because this administration is bringing it up. And it's worth noting that we are about a week or two away from a regular deadline, which is when the Treasury Department issues a determination of who out there is a currency manipulator. And so this is a bit of a put up or shut up moment when the things you said on the campaign trail, all right, now are you going to do the official Treasury release and are you going to follow through? The awkward thing um, for the administration on this is that China's not manipulating its currency, um, which makes it hard when you've been claiming repeatedly that they are. You can have a good historical argument about what they were doing some years ago. It's quite clear that what they're doing now, and I should say, 
when we talk about manipulating their currency, the general implication is they are trying to make their currency depreciate. They're intervening to make their currency depreciate, which will have the effect of making their exports look cheaper and our goods that we send to them look more expensive. So if we take that as a definition, China at the moment seems to be doing exactly the opposite. They are spending down foreign exchange reserves. Over the last couple of years, they've spent roughly a trillion dollars worth of foreign exchange reserves, not in an effort to drive their currency down, just the reverse, to stop their currency from depreciating so much, to try to boost it up. So they are intervening, that's true, but they're pushing in exactly the direction, and they're pushing hard that you would that if you want to take a mercantilist approach, that you would hope they would push. And, and why is that? If it's such an advantage to have cheap exports abroad, why would China be trying to hold the currency up? I think the, the concern is that a rapid depreciation of the currency can be very destabilizing. It How can, so? It can cause inflation. Um, that's usually the primary note. The, the, the so Chinese, your currency goes down, everything you import then becomes much more expensive and it, drives up prices. Exactly. And if you look at sort of Chinese recent history, yes, of course, there's a concern about unemployment and what happens if you have sort of export sectors who aren't doing well. Their political troubles have correlated very well with periods of inflation um, historically. So, for example, Tiananmen Square in 1989, there were a number of things going on. Among those things was a burst of inflation. If you have people who are not getting high rates of return, often sort of a cash economy, you get a lot of popular discontent when inflation starts rearing up. That was very helpful. Thank you. Uh, to close, I, I want to ask each of you, what outcomes should we be watching for from this summit, and specifically that tell us what direction relationships between the U.S. and China are likely to go, whether they're likely to become more confrontational or if they're likely to become somewhat more cooperative? Now, what are the key things we should look for? To me, I'm most worried about sort of the nature of the deals that come out. People like Ed Luce and Dan Dresner have been writing about this. Um, you don't have a the proper array of, of Asia experts and certainly not China experts yes, yet in the government, that you don't have a deputy secretary of state, much less um, an undersecretary for political affairs, much less an assistant secretary for East Asia and the Pacific. These may seem like sort of obscure positions, but this is the team that would normally be an overdrive, preparing a president, attending negotiations, translating. Because Carl talked about how it was unthinkable that the U.S. would concede you know, major things like Chinese influence over the South China Sea. Maybe it's unthinkable that they would do it deliberately, but you can do that inadvertently. In fact, there was some talk of this when Secretary of State Tillerson went to Asia, that simply by an awkward choice of words, by adopting some language that the other side proposes, you can inadvertently sign on to a number of implications that you may not really have intended. And I think the Chinese are not going to come with a skeleton team. They are going to come with people who are very well versed in these kinds of negotiations. They, I think, will offer the president the kinds of things that he would like. I think investment possibilities, things that he can trumpet that he's creating jobs. And the question is going to be, what kind of trade-offs are we making for those things? And how much are we giving up, either deliberately or inadvertently? 
Terrific. And Carl, what, what do you think we should be watching for in this summit? Now, so Phil touched on some things that kind of play out in the medium to longer term, right? You put deals in place, and those deals aren't always immediate or their implications aren't always immediate. So they kind of, you know, they over over time you learn little details here and there and you watch them play out. And that's a good way to judge, I think, you know, a little bit in, a, in the the longer time frame about the success of summits. You know, my concern is perhaps more in the immediate term, right? You know, we're, we're at a stage now where we have to worry about handshakes. Uh, we're at a stage now where we have to worry about if the if the president isn't happy, what he's going to be saying on, on social uh, media. And so I think that is what I'll be looking for immediately. If, if the president is not happy, then I think we'll have a very good idea of where this relationship is headed. And that's something that is, I think, especially concerning uh, considering the fact that China's coming into this, and of course they want to be treated as an equal, as as being seen as a great power, and if they feel like they are not getting that respect, it's going to be, I think, uh, apparent immediately by uh, by President Trump's actions. And so I think we'll have a very good indication of where this relationship is headed, perhaps even within hours of the summit actually taking place. Terrific. Thanks, Phil and Carl, both for coming on. Uh, Deep Dish this week, uh, coming back to Deep Dish this week uh, to talk about the meeting, the upcoming summit between Trump and Xi. Uh, Obviously, these are topics that will play out over a considerable period of time, and we will be revisiting with both of you. Um, Also, thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment and give us a review. Your review will help promote the broader understanding of global affairs and help others find our show. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast and on the council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.